Hey friend, Becky here. I'm your host and you're listening to We Are Free. This is a podcast about letting go of what we think our lives should look like and the sweet freedom God has for us on the other side of surrender. If you're new here, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes with the incredible women I get to chat with every week. And if We Are Free has been an encouragement to you, it would mean so much to me if you headed over to iTunes to rate and review the show. Thank you so much for all of your support. All right, let's get going. I can't wait for you to listen to this latest episode. Welcome to We Are Free, episode 67. My guest today is Mary Morantz. Mary is a Yale Law School graduate and the first in her immediate family to go to college. She is the author of the book Dirt about growing up in West Virginia and the host of The Mary Morantz Show, which debuted in the iTunes Top 200 podcast list. Her writing has been featured by Business Insider, Thrive Global, MSN, Bustle, and Brit & Co. Welcome, Mary. Oh my gosh. Like with an intro like that, I'm like, mm, maybe we'll just stop recording right there. <laughs> we'll just good, leave it right there. No, you've worked hard. You've you've accomplished a lot of great things. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, I know you just finished. We're going to talk about your first book and a lot of what you've written and a lot of life that you've lived to have written that book. Um, and But I know you just finished wrapping up uh, writing your second book. How are you allowed to say yeah. anything yet? <laughs> about that yeah okay. oh my gosh yeah I just um we just handed it off uh like a week ago uh -huh. a week and two days ago and so um you know I kind of I've been telling people if Dirt which is my first book released in September of 2020 if that is a love letter to the girl in the trailer this book is sort of the follow-up that's a love letter to the girl after and what I mean by that is I think for a lot of us who didn't grow up with a lot, we the switch kind of gets flipped in us. We feel like we have to run out into the world and achieve and achieve and achieve and build this beautiful life if our story is going to make sense. And somewhere along the way, we forget how to turn that off. And so, you know, we find ourselves the the dopamine hits come closer together or they they don't last as long or you get less of a high and you need more and more and more and more. Um, just feel like you're worth anything. And so this is a book about giving up achieving for your worth and really just kind of like getting rooted in your purpose and, and permission to slow down and, and you know, live those things that are, are actually going to last versus just like this sugary sweet of high of yeah. the next big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So for every girl, really. <laughs> yeah. You know, we honestly, all need it. Like, Honestly, I really do feel that way. Like yeah. I think a lot of people found themselves in dirt, mm. even if they didn't necessarily grow up the same way. But I feel like this book is like, it's it's the world we live in right yeah. now. You know, it's highlight reels and yep. man, you just go on Instagram and it feels like everybody's doing something, yep. you know, and you're not, you're sitting in your kitchen scrolling on your phone or whatever. And so yep. I, I really do feel like I'm really excited for what it looks like because I know personally and deeply how exhausting living like that is. And I wrote this book very much from the trenches, not from the mountaintop, not like, oh, it's just easy. Like what? Like it's hard. Give up achieving for your worth. It's fine. It's, it talks about you don't do that once you do it over and over one day at a time. Yeah. Well, I'm excited yeah. to, to read that one too. Yeah. Uh, Mary, let's start from the beginning. I know there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your childhood, um, where you lived, what it looked like, um, maybe a few experiences just to give us like a picture of what your world was. Yeah. So I grew up in a single wide 1980s era trailer on the mountain, the top of a mountain in Richwood, West Virginia. It was actually Fenwick Mountain outside of Richwood, West Virginia. And if for everybody listening, if you just 
go to thebookdirt.com or, or Google the book dirt, the trailer that's on the cover of the book is the actual trailer I grew up in. Um, fun fact, my husband, Justin, who's a photographer, took it the first time I brought him home to meet my family. And he just sort of saw the scene and, and you know, I was, I was prepared for him to feel, I don't know, embarrassed on my behalf or to feel shocked or to feel kind of, um, you know, when an arm's length his life in New Jersey and seeing this. And instead he just like leaned into it and he said, I love it because it tells me about a, you know, a part of you that's made you who you are. And so, you know, I, I always say like my people are the people who know what drywall or whatever it is in the ceiling looks like right mm -hmm. before it gives way. You know, when it's so swollen with that leaky brown muddy water pouring through the ceiling right before it crumbles. And, um, you know, we, we, 1980s trailers were not made to go the distance. They really weren't. And we definitely didn't help it because, you know, I'm an only child, but we had like a neighborhood crew of kids that would hang out and we would, Becky, we would climb up on top of this trailer <laughs> and go sliding along the aluminum in the rain. Like how I survived to this day, yeah. I don't know. But spoiler alert, like roofs like that don't hold up too well when you're up there running around on them. And so, you know, the roof started leaking and started caving in and then that water has to go somewhere. So it would go into the particle board floor and then that would cave in. You had to know like where to jump on the carpet, mm -hmm. hopscotch your way through the living room so you didn't just fall all the way through. And the carpet started smelling like mildew. We had mushrooms growing out of it at one point. We had a ton of stray animals. I say a revolving door of stray animals in the trailer mm -hmm. who were never, you know, litter trained or whatever you want to call it. And so the brown shag carpeting would be this mix of muddy rainwater and, you know, animals going inside and my dad's work boots, the mud from his work boots, where you didn't know where dirt ended and the carpet began. And so that kind of becomes the first level metaphor for why I called the book dirt. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just grew up like that from zero to 18 till I left for college um, starting in the 1980s. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. like how you felt then about all of that when you were a you girl? Know, it's a good question. I feel like um, even when I was little, I think I felt like, yeah, you know, I, I want more than this. And I, I, I don't feel like this is normal, even though it very much, it wasn't out of the norm. There were plenty of people who lived in trailers where I grew up and people who I'm sure lived in even, you know, worse condition trailers. Um, so it was like this mix of like, it's not abnormal because mm -hmm. most people have this going on. Um, but I think like one of the things that really changed for me is I was friends with a, a girl whose family had a really nice house. And so like they started to become kind of that like rich dad, poor dad example in my life where I knew that there was something else. Yeah. And I talk about in dirt, I would sit in the yard and like have my blue spiral bound notebook and try to like draw sketches of how we could put a roof over the trailer and walls around it. And Becky, one of the things I realized on a podcast not too long ago is never once did I sketch out a blueprint for my life where we would sell the trailer or bulldoze the trailer down and build from this fresh ground up. It was always about putting this these walls around the trailer within and this facade around the trailer within, and then it could become a real house. Mm. And that's such a metaphor for that girl after the trailer part of my life where it's like, let me put up these facades. Let me put up these walls that don't let people get too close mm -hmm. so that they, didn't, they never find out about the trailer within. Yeah. 
So I feel like once I left home, you know, and moved to Connecticut, like you would get a feel even more so of, you know, okay, this is not necessarily the the average um, American family experience, perhaps. Um, but there's still a lot of people who have that experience. Maybe even, I don't know, it would be interesting to know the breakdown. I think about this a lot. Like how many people are growing up in that like two-story suburban house experience like Justin had and how many people fit more into this like girl in the trailer category? Yeah. What's funny is um, like no matter where you grow up, it's like I feel like whether it's like family issues or like a mom and dad who have a bad marriage, it's like I feel like we can relate to some degree. Maybe this is what you're finding with people who are reading Dirt. It's like we've all have something from the beginning that doesn't feel quite right. You know, maybe I shouldn't say all, but I would say a lot of us, you know. Mm. Yeah, Um, it's so interesting. It's so interesting that you say that because like my husband, Justin, grew up in a suburb in New Jersey, Livingston, New Jersey. Parents got married when they were like 20. Super happy to this day, like still are like high school sweethearts, basically. Um, and I said to him once, like, you know, what, did you have any like traumas when you were growing up? Like, what was your, what was the most traumatic thing that happened to you when you were growing up? And he was like, well, I mean, I guess like one time there was a mouse in the kitchen. And I was just like, no, <laughs> no, that doesn't, that doesn't that's count. It. it doesn't count. It doesn't count. And so there are people, yeah, that's true. there are people who just never mm-hmm. had anything like that. And what I think is beautiful about that is if you go back one generation or two generations or three generations in that family, somebody did though. You know, there was a break in that family tree somewhere. And so I always think like, you know, if Justin and I are able to start a family, like hopefully our kids will have that experience, you know? Right. And what's cool about those people, people like Justin, is that they don't, you know, there isn't all this stuff to deal with first. They can just kind of stand on those shoulders of giants of the parents and grandparents who came before. So I like having both experiences in yeah. our household. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, what was the transition like you leaving West Virginia and like what struggles did you encounter as you went off into the world on your own, like deciding who you were, realizing who you were, all of those things. Uh, what did that season of your life look like for you? You know what I think is interesting? Um, and I think probably a lot of people listening to this will resonate with this is one of some of the biggest obstacles we face is this filter and this perception of how we think the world sees us. And, you know, you can call that like a chip on your shoulder or just in book two, I actually have a whole um, entry that I write about this, this filter that we wear. And I kind of say, it's like Nick Cage and national treasure, like the Benjamin Franklin glasses where you have to like, you know, have all three down to be able to see things. And it's like, we go into the world, especially if we feel like there's something in our story that disqualified us, something that we think just makes us ineligible to walk into most rooms, uninvited to most tables. For me, when I first left West Virginia, I I did my undergrad at WVU. So 22, I got a year scholarship to go, you know, get my master's in England. And part of that scholarship, it was the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship was that I would go around to all these different Rotary clubs in England and I would be an ambassador for West Virginia and I would give a talk about my home state. And as part of my talk, I remember leading off with like a joke of like, yes, I'm from West Virginia. And as you will see, I'm wearing shoes. And at this one club, I'll never forget this. This guy pulled me aside and he said, why did you feel the need to say that? Mm. Like, what, like what, what was that about? Like, like, why did that even need to be addressed? And I said, oh, I just feel like everybody thinks of West Virginia and they think we're a bunch of people who run around, you know, barefoot and, you know, hillbillies and all the other stereotypes. And he said, well, I mean, 
like, why are you like breathing life into that? Like, why are you throwing fuel on the fire for that? And it stuck out to me, but it wasn't like necessarily enough to get me to change right away because I still from that went to Yale for law school and expected to be treated, you know, like the trailer trash or to be treated like grew up in West Virginia, whatever, like you're, you're not one of us, you're not a trust fund baby or what have you. And what ended up happening is I found out there were a lot of different people in my class who came from a lot of different backgrounds. Some of them were trust funds, some of them were not, you know, and the whole spectrum in between. But I spent three years holding most of those people at arm's length so that I could kind of like reject them before they rejected me, I guess, or like maybe not, I don't think like fully reject, but like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let you get close enough to hurt me. And I think that's like, man, that's like one of my biggest regrets is like, if I could just go back and take that chip off my shoulder, if I could just take that filter off and realize that like not once in three years, did anybody ever say anything to me all that time that got wasted? I would love to go back and just do that part over, not the studying or the (laughs) exams or any of that stuff. But yeah, I just think like, man, what a waste that was. So extrapolate that out. Like how much of your life for anybody who's listening, have you been walking out into the world thinking people are already judging me? People are already not inviting me. People are already not including me. Is that true? Or is it this filter we've put on? Yeah. And it's so funny because we, you would never, like if you were to think it's a friend of mine or somebody else who had a history or past, like, no, of course I wouldn't, you know, of course I'd invite them. Of course I'd want to be warm to them too. Like we would Mm. never, we would like to think we would never treat people that way. So why do we think that everybody, everybody else is going to treat us that way? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think um, some of the best advice I ever got it was like a boss at like a summer job. And he said, treat people like people. That sounds so simple and like, okay, sure thing. But I think like what he was kind of getting at is there's like a quote that's like, if you can make normal people feel like celebrities and celebrities feel like normal people, you'll go really far in the world. It's, It's something like that. It's like you had no more control being born into a trust fund than I had being born in a trailer. And we're all just here trying to use the gifts we've been given to make the world a little better. Yeah. And I think as soon as you can kind of like get on that ground with people, you you find exactly what you said. Like most people would never want to hurt somebody intentionally. Right. Yeah. So Mary, yeah. how did you go from having that filter and um, having those expectations of people that they would treat you a certain way to letting that dissolve and, or kind of diving into the dirt of it all and realizing that's where like beauty and these gifts that you have and the life that you have, like all of that has been born. Like, how did you how did you make that transition? You know, I think it's something like so it's like a Friday. <laughs> and so ask me on Saturday. Thing, <laughs> you know, it's uh it's a process. It's a it's a hundred percent a process. Um I think I think there's a few different answers that are important for people to hear. The first is that there is just a softening that comes with age and it comes with time. Um, in dirt, I talk about this very scientific theory I have that we're all born into the world and we have these hard edges and we're just all out there bumping into one another, unintentionally leaving these marks on one another. I say like death by a thousand cuts. Um, and when we go through things as life has a way of doing, it's like these progressively finer grits of sandpaper that are rounding off the hard corners. And the result is that you become a soft person. You become this soft you know, place to land. And so For me, I think part of it was um, exactly what I described. It's going through three years of something that could have been amazing and in so many ways was, but you end up missing out on something. And so that regret, I'm not a, regret is one of my least favorite Mm -hmm. emotions, but if it can teach you something, it can can say like, 
okay, that's how it was in that season of life. Let's not take it into the next one. You know, if you feel like I'm 30 today or I'm 35 today or I'm 45 today or whatever the age is and you think, man, I've spent the last 10 years struggling with belonging or struggling with comparison or wearing busy as a badge of honor or being stressed out about money. Like when I, when I really want to change something in my life, I think, well, I can't get that time back, but I can let that pain point teach me. Do I want to spend the next 10 years like that? So I think it's part of it is just like really feeling the pain of living one way and saying, I don't want to keep walking around like that. I think a huge part of it, a second thing I would say is my faith. You know, there's this idea of finding your identity in Christ. And if you can find your identity in Christ, then all of the, the other opinions and belonging, it all falls away. And I talk about this in book two. I'm like, what does this even mean? Like, what are we talking about here? Like a, a driver's license? Like, what does it mean to have your, oh, it's okay. I got my identity. I got my ID here. We're okay. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea of, you know, so much of what we're chasing when we talk about this filter, or we talk about achieving for our worth or, or, or comparison or trying to keep up running away from our stories. So much of that is chasing other people. It's to be enough of something so that other people invite you to those tables. Um, there's a C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about the inner circle. We're perpetually trying to get to the inner circle. And only when we get there, we realize there's an inner ring even beyond that. Um, which also reminds me of one of my favorite Frasier episodes. Frasier has a, it's a source of all wisdom. <laughs> um, and they're at a spa and they're like, first of all, they can't get into the spa because it's too exclusive. And then they get in and they see somebody go through like the gold door. And now they want to be through the gold door. And then it's like the platinum door. And they keep chasing these doors and thinking like the next experience will be the one. And they end up going through this final door and they end up in the alleyway with the garbage. <laughs> and they can't get back into the spa, right? So like we're chasing so much stuff in so many people. And then the creator of the universe is already saying, but you're enough to sit with me right now. You know? So, so why do you care what other people think of you? So I think that's part of it. And then I feel like there's probably like five more answers there <laughs> that we can go through, but that was two very long answers and Frazier got in there. So yeah, we'll probably stop right there. No, that's good. That's good stuff. Um, you, I mean, you've obviously achieved a lot, you've done a lot and you've obviously worked hard to get where you are now. Um, I want to just take a look at like how your childhood, how your past, how like processing all of this stuff, believing that dirt is where the good stuff comes from. How would you take a look at, um, you know, success, achievement, all the shiny things we all think we see on in everybody else's life on Instagram? Um, mm-hmm. Like what has, like, what are your thoughts on that? How do you um, go from girl in the trailer to girl where you are now and being the same girl. It's not like you're two different people. Like, have you had mm-hmm. any like conflict within uh, about that? I mean, am I trying to express this clearly? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a huge, com- like a huge journey in dirt, you know, when, I, when we were, oh man, when you're writing a book, it requires a lot of post-it notes and a lot of, you know, note cards and moving things around on the floor or the table to try to figure out how it all fits together. And I would say that like, Dirt probably has like seven narrative arcs throughout it, which is a lot to juggle in one book. But there's like the relationship with me and my dad, the relationship with me and my mom, the relationship with me and my grandma, the relationship with me in the trailer, the relationship with me and God, the relationship with marriage and not thinking I ever wanted to get married because of, you know, what I'd seen in my parents' marriage. And so there's a lot of things that are getting resolved there. But maybe one of the biggest ones is this tightly stitched seam 
that starts off between the girl in the trailer and the girl after in the beginning and throughout until we get towards the end, I keep them very separate. Um, and there's a scene in the very beginning of the book that was very important to me that we got in where it's talking about, you know, I'm in my dad's hospital room and it says the girl in the trailer and the girl after had both come to stand by my father's bedside, both knowing full well, they should have come much sooner from that place. I could hear the nurses in their, at their station in the hallway. The accent sounded both foreign and familiar at the same time. And when we were doing the copy editing, I don't remember how she wanted to change it, but it was going to lose that meaning of it being the same experience happening simultaneously where you almost start to feel like you have multiple personalities. There's the part of you who's experiencing this external set of circumstances and saying, oh, it's clearly this. And then there's the part of you going, oh, no, it's something totally different. So those West Virginia nurses sounding both foreign to the girl after the trailer and familiar to the girl in the trailer. And so the whole big journey is finding a way for those two to hang out. And one of my favorite pictures of that is um, Viola Davis, the actress, was actually interviewed in People magazine. She didn't grow up with a lot either. And they said to her, well, like, how are you trying to heal little Viola? And she said, are you kidding me? She's healing me mm. because she's dancing around my kitchen going, look at our refrigerator. This is incredible. And so like l- allowing this version of you who dreamed in blue spiral bound notebooks to stand in wonderstruck awe at the life you have now, I think that kind of just like really ha- helps to like anchor you in gratitude and anchor you in the present. Um, and those two becoming friends has been a lot of fun because I feel like before dirt, everything was like dark and moody and bittersweet and like high contrast, black and white. And since that book has come out, I'm like rainbow colors and like punky Brewster's back on TV. And like, we did just buy a Care Bear on eBay. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and I feel like uh, right now, like the girl in the trailer is like little Mary's having a lot of fun leading the show right now. So I think she's like healing me. Yeah. Oh, I love that answer. I love hearing mm-hmm. that. Um, Mary, for somebody who is, who has a past, um, whatever that looks like, um, she knows it's there, but maybe somebody listening who like, I know, and I've heard like in order to move forward in your life, in order to have healthy relationships, in order to, you know, move, not forget your past, but move through it and process and heal and all these things, you got to, you have to dive into it. You can't just Mm -hmm. seal it up tight, try to push it under the rug. Like that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So for somebody listening who maybe knows that there's stuff she needs to dig into, but doesn't really want to, but like it mm-hmm. keeps being convicted that she does, like what advice or encouragement do you have for her? You know, the honest advice that I have, Becky, is to write it down. Even if you have zero desire of ever being a writer or an author or like putting it on a blog or putting it in an Instagram caption or ever letting anybody see it, like put it in a Word document that doesn't even live on the internet, not even like Google Doc, like put it, you know, or a notebook or whatever. Um, But a couple of things happen when you start to write your story. Um, There's a really beautiful book called The Art of Memoir from Mary Carr, who wrote The Liar's Club and Lit and a few other really beautiful memoirs that did very well. And she has this exercise she has you go through and she says, I want you to think about that scene. And we all have that scene. It's that scene that we think of, of like, how would I ever write that? How would I ever put words to that? How would I ever even begin to think about sharing that with the world? 
And she says, I want you, you know, most people would say like ease into it or warm up to it or, you know, get some of the other scenes out of the way. She said, I want you to think about that scene. And I want you to start to think about what it looked like, what it smelled like, you know, what the textures were around you. I want you to go deeper and deeper into that scene. She said, go so deep that when you look down and you look at your hands, your hands look like they were the age you were when it happened. Like be that deep into the scene and then right from that place. And she's using that as an exercise to help you figure out if you're in a place emotionally to write your memoir yet. It's like if you were going to write it to be published. And her whole thing was like, if you write that scene and you don't shed a tear, chances are you haven't tapped into that emotion yet. You haven't even agreed to get choked up or get emotional. You might still be like really behind a wall. Mm-hmm. She's like, if you write that scene and you're in the corner in the fetal position, rocking, <laughs> you know, and catatonic or whatever, you're probably not in a place to write it. If you're somewhere in the middle, it's probably the sweet spot. But again, bringing that full circle, even if you have no desire to make that an official memoir, official book, my friend Allie Fallon, who I just um, interviewed on my show, she talks about how just the act of writing down your story allows you to stand outside of it for a minute. It allows you to get some distance and some perspective um, because you almost start to like treat yourself like the character of the story and like, what would the character do in this moment? And you get a little distance to go, wow, that character was kind of a jerk in that moment actually, or was not appreciative the way they should have been in that moment. Um, and so for me, writing dirt in the first draft of dirt was very different than the draft that you hold. That was a very bitter draft. It was a very angry draft. It was the first time I was putting a lot of the things that happened to me when I was growing up on paper. And I always say like, now I know that draft was for me. Mm-hmm. Like you just kind of have to get that poison out of you sometimes. Um, and that difference between draft one to draft two, my coach Kim and I always call that the butt God turning of the page. This butt God moment, like butt God, I would have been a first draft person. Um, and so for me, that kind of like the act of writing it down, I say it kind of feels like holding the the story of your life out in front of you like a prism. And you have always seen one side of that prism very clearly, one facade of that prism very clearly. And it's not that that's not true. It's not that that version of your story is not true. It exists. You remember it that way. It happened. But when we start to turn that prism, when we start to say, well, what did it look like from that person in the room standing on the other side? What did it look like from their side, from their perspective? What was going on that I didn't know was happening? What are these things that like I learned along the way that I didn't know when I was seven years old? When you start to turn it and see all those other sides, the most beautiful thing, so turning it, it becomes truer. There were other people involved. They had opinions. The truest version of that story is when you start to see where the light gets in. You start to see how the light comes through those different sides. And that's like, to me, that's like, what does the story look like in light of what God says about it? Mm -hmm. So that is my answer. It's like, never put that pressure. You have to hit send. Maybe you will. You know, maybe you'll get it down and it'll be like this. The world needs this. But just the sheer act of actually saying, this happened. I'm going to acknowledge this happened. I'm going to put words to it. I'm going to put it on the paper and allow me to get a little distance to say, what was really going on here? Where was I contributing to this, if at all? So it's a it's a not easy answer. Most people are not going to want to hear that. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you it has changed my life. Yeah. I love that. Um, And I love like naming it like Laura Casey, very like words are powerful. I've spoken with her different times and like there is power in saying whatever it is out loud. I just interviewed a Chinese adoptee. Um, We were talking about like loss and feelings of abandonment and all these different things. And 
was talking with her about, um, you know, my daughter and who's adopted and some fears I have for her future, all these different things. And I mean, she's a young 20 something old and she's so wise. She's like, you know, there's fear and naming it and getting it out mm-hmm. and then light can hit it. And anyway, I just like the same, the same theme keeps coming back. And I think it's so good And the hard stuff. We have to be able to acknowledge it and get it yeah. out. Otherwise it's just going to like bury itself like deep in our hearts. And that hurts really badly. Yeah. I mean, it is, um, there's a part in dirt where I talk about Justin and I buying our house, which is the house that I'm in right now. We bought it 11 years ago, uh, coming up on 12 years ago, actually. And, um, you know, I grew up in this trailer, this leaky trailer that would then get hot in the summer and smell like mildew. And I would go to school with my clothes smelling like mildew and I would try to spray dollar store vanilla perfume on mildew. So sickly sweet on top of sickly sweet. And it is the reason I hate the smell of both mildew and vanilla to this day. And we walk into this house, 2009, bottom of the market, and we live on the water in in Connecticut on the Long Island Sound, but the house was a disaster. A pipe had burst on the third floor, had run, you know, nobody was watching it, it was in foreclosure, had run for days before they caught it. The neighbor saw water pouring out of the second floor window, so basement, first floor, second floor. Um, they, you know, let it drain out or whatever. And it sat for several more months, got mold and mildew. Uh, and we walk into this house that smells like mildew and it felt like home. And I talk about like when they were coming in to gut the house, the contractors, fun fact, the people who cleaned up Katrina are the same people who cleaned up our house. They have a patent on dealing with mold and mildew. And so when they were coming in and they were dealing with that, they said that because of the character with which this built this house was built in the 1880s, these 12 by 12 solid wood beams, a steel rod running through their backbones. Because it was built with solid wood and not particle board, the mold couldn't truly get in. The bad stuff couldn't truly get in. And like we had to go through and kind of do this gutting to get this poison out. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, we got down to like the good stuff about how it was raised up. Yeah. The character and the integrity. There's just something really beautiful about that. When you kind of get that poison out, you can see, but this is what this story made me. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, Mary, what do you feel um, are some of the strengths that God has given you, grown in you, um, created in you that you have to this day um, that are because of your entire story? I think I'm a very empathetic person. Um you know, when they talk about like empaths where you can just sort of like walk into a room and you absorb the energy, like you can just tell like if somebody's got something going on or what have you. I think I'm a very empathetic person, um, which I think like there's that great Elizabeth Kubler-Ross quote that says like beautiful people don't just happen, you know. <clears throat> and I think like that goes back to that, like rounding off the hard corners, like some of the most beautiful people I know have gone through things. Um, we were just talking about this. I had... um I don't know if you know Zim Flores. She wrote a book called Dare to Bloom, and it just came out in December. And she was talking about how the oil that we are used, that that they use to anoint people with, it came from a crushing and a pressing. I thought that was really, really beautiful. So I think like the crushing and the pressing um, in our lives turns into anointings. And one of mine is empathy. I think words have just sort of always been there. Grit and tenacity, both just the way that I grew up, but then also 15 years of being an entrepreneur, you know, like... Mm -hmm. If we get knocked down, we're like tub thumping. We will get back up again. <laughs> um, you know, I just think that there's like, uh, because I always worried about not being accepted or invited 
or, you know, just having like your whole worth dismissed by somebody else. I think I'm always like really aware of like trying to be kind to people and include people. Um, and I think that like that combination of gifts makes me a really good coach and a really good mentor. Cause I can usually hear the things that people are saying and then the things that they are not saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, kind of like what goes on between the lines. Yeah. So I hear I can, you, but I also see there's more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that little, like that Mary kind of head nod. Like, uh-huh. are you sure? Are you mm-hmm. sure? So yeah, I would say like those, you know, words are definitely whether spoken or written are probably like my biggest wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, <laughs> Mary, what do you do? You said, I mean, whether it's a Friday or Saturday, it might be, your answer might be different. You know, it's a process always as, you know, we never really attain, you know, this place where we're all trying to go. Um, we're always in process of something. When you encounter thoughts or negativity or anything that like tries to hold you back that has in the past, like when you encounter that today or tomorrow or next week, like how do you approach that? What do you do now with those things? Oh, um, do you want to give me an example of a negativity? Like, are you thinking like um, I'm just from your pre- yes, mm-hmm. like anything mm-hmm. like oh maybe walls go up like oh yeah. they're not you know you're feeling those things of the past that you that you used to feel a lot. Yeah, well, I will say for everybody listening, um, and Mary who's also listening right now, listen to this, Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, things like the things that you that are your sort of like ongoing struggle. Somebody was calling that a, a word the other day. It was like your signature struggle or mm. something like that. Um, that it will find very tricky ways to get back in. So like in our business for years, it was like we formed this check, this like Megatron checklist of other people's success that we thought everything anybody else did had to be added to our master list. So even though that person was doing one thing, that person was doing one thing, that person was doing one thing. Great. So we have to do three things. Got it. Um, for years we had that in our business. And then we said, you know, gosh, we're exhausted. Like enough of this. What does success look like for us? Then I sign on to write a book that literally has a whole other bunch of lists you can go chase. You know, are you going to try to get on this list? Are you going to try to be a bestseller? Are you going to try to get on that podcast? Well, is that person going to endorse it? And so once you get it under control in one area, it has a really tricky way of sneaking in the side door. So I would say that's why I keep going back to don't get frustrated. Don't beat yourself up. If you're like, man, I thought this, ha- I had this under control and then comparison snuck back in or busy snuck back in or feeling like not enough of something to reach out to that person snuck back in or feeling like everybody's hanging out without me snuck back in. It's just the nature of the beast. You know, um, Stephen Pressfield's War of Art is one of my favorite books. He talks about the resistance and how anytime you are about to go do work that will do good in the world and is going to level you up to a higher plane closer to your alignment and your calling, the resistance will show up. And he says, the resistance is not very original. It's not very clever. It has a very specific set of things it tends to try. And I've been coaching, we've been doing a mastermind the first six months of this year with people who want to write a book. And it is like eerie the way it's showing up mm-hmm. almost in the exact same ways in their lives. You know, just like um, husbands having to travel. So suddenly they're doing all the childcare or what have you, or like, um, you know, suddenly getting really, really busy with a bunch of work they didn't expect or feeling like they have to go do these five things before they can get started on the big thing. And so I think like what I always say to them is, yep, it is week 11 right on time. You know, like the resistance is not that original. Like it's going to keep showing up and the quicker you can go, that's the resistance or that's just comparison or that's just any of these other things I struggle with showing up 
I think the faster you can identify it without judging yourself, the faster it will disappear. Just like a mist, like a fog. Yep, I know what you are. I'm facing fear head on with love. It just, it tends to disappear. So don't be too hard on yourself. Just recognize it for what it is, you know? Yeah. One day at a time. One day at a time. I love that answer. And with practice, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes easier and yes. it becomes a smaller thing. Yeah, for sure. Mary, um, uh, of everything you've experienced and lived through, um, the things you're writing about now and what you're writing about in your second book, uh, what do you feel that God has set you free from? You know, I, oh man, um, a few different things, but I feel like the biggest one that's really been playing out in my life lately is this double punch of entitlement and, att- and attachment. And so what I mean is like, having these plans in your mind and feeling entitled to a specific outcome and attached to the way in which that outcome will come to be. So entitled could be this book will be really successful and I'm attached to it being successful in these ways. Entitlement could be feeling like other people owe you something in terms of opening a door or saying yes when you ask them for something or, or tagging you once on Instagram and changing your whole life, which does not happen by the way. Um, you know, it's like entitled to speak on a stage or, or have somebody see the the genius in your idea that you do, even if they don't see it yet. So there's a lot of this feeling that I think for years has been, if my story is going to make any sense at all, starting out in a trailer, the only way that becomes a story that's worth telling is if the outcome is me being wildly successful in a way that nobody has ever been successful before. And what that means for me as an achiever, as a control freak, as an A-plus gold star, a holic, is that I can say these things must happen and they must happen in this way. And I know that we will have this in common, this idea of I want to start a family. And so I am entitled to it, to that happening and I am attached to it turning out in this way. And I feel like I'm just being freed from all of that, you know, and there's just such a, like an opening of the hand, just a release, just a, a, there's some roses sitting on my counter, like a rose opening up when it's good and ready. Mm-hmm. Um, there's such a, like a, you, you realize how much energy you are wasting clenching your fists, like this frenetic energy just to vibrate in one place, moving left and right just enough to keep you stuck. You know, and once you're just sort of like, you know, I'm here, I have gifts. They have, there are people who can be helped by those gifts. God has a plan for that. I believe he's going to do good things in my life. I believe he's going to give me hope and a future. As soon as you can kind of trust in that, all of that like stress and that just like angst and that frenetic frenzied, you know, energy Um, You realize how much of your life you were wasting with that. So I feel like that's what he's setting me free of. It's just like entitled to this result and attached to how it happens. I love how you describe that because I can very much relate. And I think that's the perfect way to describe that. And it's exhausting. It's very exhausting to like be in that place of like not letting it go because you try, 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 try all these things. But God is a lot smarter than we are. (laughs) Well, I mean, here's a good example of that, Becky. When we were first putting in offers for houses, We did our taxes on January 1st of 2009 so that we could have that year, because, you know, for entrepreneurs, you have to average like your last two years of income or whatever. We wanted those, you know, because we were growing. So we did the, we wanted the last two years to to be those years instead of the whatever. Yeah. 
And so we put in an offer on a house on like January 6th and like that afternoon it was accepted. And then the next day they backed out and we were devastated. I wrote a blog post that was like, it was like being kicked in the stomach. And I cried on the bathroom floor as I stared at the fuzz stuck to the vent or whatever. It was very dramatic. Becky, we went through six more offers, official offers put in before we got this house. And this house was actually like it's number six and number seven or something like that because it was taking so long to get the renovation loan, whatever approved that after 45 days, they just kick your offer out. So we had to go through the whole process and start over. And at any one of those houses before I would have said, God, please give me this. Yes. Please let this be the yes. This is the one I know it. And when I think about if if we had gotten any of those houses, what we would have missed out on here. I mean, we literally wake up to 180 degree views of the water and 10 years of home renovations to make it livable. Um, but like we're sitting here in this house we love and we've gotten to spend a decade of our lives like stewarding this, you know, our chapter of this house well, because there were many chapters before and many chapters that will come after. And I just think about like, well, okay, God, I guess you know what you were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you do have, a, you know, some plans in place. And then I think about all the other areas of my life where I'm like, no, this is the one, this is the time. And God's like, you don't even know what's coming. The story of my life, Mary, (laughs) you're preaching to me. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for just sharing just your words and your passion and your heart and all God has done and who you are. Like it just, it's so great to hear from you. And I'm so grateful to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much. This was an honor and so much fun. So thank you. Yeah. uh, Where can people follow along with you? Where's your favorite place to hang out. Yeah. I, if you listen to the episode and something spoke to you, come over and give me a DM on Instagram. It's at Mary Marantz. And then you can find basically all the things at marymarantz.com. Um, from that central hub, you can click over to my podcast, which is the marymarantzshow.com. And then we also have the bookdirt.com if you want to check out more about the book. T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com. Thank you so much, Mary. Again, don't forget to check out the show notes where we have all of the info and links and resources we talked about in the show. You can go to beckymorquecho.com, B-E-C-K-Y-M-O-R-Q-U-E-C-H-O.com. Thanks for listening in.